Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, September 16th, and today Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about the Cold War between Mitch McConnell and billionaire Peter Thiel. Who will blink first in their standoff over spending money to help Republican Senate candidate Blake Masters in Arizona? Teddy has the inside dirt on their feud. And later on, John Kelly joins Alex Bigler for another round of Feedback Friday. Puck is celebrating its one year anniversary this week. And she talks to John about how the journey's been, what's next, and why they pay me to do this podcast. Just kidding on that last part. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer, who has, feels like always the inside uh, gossip on whatever Peter Thiel is doing. <laughs> full-time full time job. Yeah, it's your full-time job, uh, Peter Thiel beat. You were on the pod a few weeks ago, and we were talking about a source of tension in the Republican Party between Mitch McConnell and Peter Thiel, based on Peter Thiel's protege running for Senate in Arizona, Blake Masters. He's running against Mark Kelly, the Democratic incumbent. So McConnell's outside group, the Senate Leadership Fund, basically either gave up on Arizona based on polling or McConnell's gut that Blake Masters is too radical for Arizona and probably won't win and they got to spend their money elsewhere. Or, and this was part of your reporting, maybe this was a smoke signal that like, hey, Peter Thiel, you're a fucking billionaire. Can you like please help pull this guy over the finish line while we spend money on other races like in Ohio or wherever else? Because Teal did spend a lot of money in the Republican primary to get Blake Masters elected, just as he did in Ohio to get J.D. Vance, nominee of the party. This feud hasn't solved itself since we talked last, has it? It, it kind of comes down to whether or not you believe, you know, your lion eyes. Uh, what's happening in, in, in front of the camera, right, is that the Senate Leadership Fund has pulled $8 million worth of ads they were going to spend for Blake Masters in Arizona. What's happening behind the camera, there's someone who has many multiples of $8 million who very much cares about Blake Masters being the Republican senator, not the Republican nominee, and that is Peter Thiel. So this has been a, a source of, of tension, first quietly over the summer and now extraordinarily publicly, where like everything is leaking from all parties involved. And, and the question is whether or not anyone is bluffing. Is, is Peter Thiel bluffing when he says, Mitch McConnell should pay for Blake Masters' ads in Arizona. And is Mitch McConnell bluffing when he says, I'm not paying for these ads? Like, it, it sort of seems like everyone is in this, you know, game of chicken. And, and Peter, there's there's an element of me that sort of feels bad for Blake, um, who, uh, you know, he's a, he's a big boy and he's running, you know, a, a political nominee of a major party. But, like, because of our campaign finance system, like, there's only so much he can do. He, I reported in a new story this week, has spent time with both Mitch McConnell. Mitch did a fundraiser for Blake Masters in D.C. last week. And he spent time with Peter Thiel. They spent some time in, in Florida this, this weekend. But Blake Masters cannot engineer the impossible here. He cannot basically serve as this coordinating function. So I think what you're seeing is the press play this weird coordinating role between the campaign and the super PAC and the super PACs with one another, where everyone is leaking to try to, like, influence the other party. You know, I talked about this with Tara a little bit yesterday and the Rick Scott drama going on at the NRSC. But I mean, we've got six weeks about until election day. And it, like 
according to the Real Clear Politics average, this is a four-point race. Like, this is still winnable for Blake Masters. And, like, the polling kind of hasn't been great. It's still gettable for, for Republicans. And so that's why what's, like, confusing me about this, this game of, of chicken. Like, why are people waiting so late? Because, like, if you're a media buyer here, like, you kind of run out of space, like inventory to buy ads, like at some point in the next month, <laughs> like there's just not going to be a lot of places to pump money into if you don't make these reservations now. I'll tell you, the, the McConnell people um, do not necessarily believe the race is as close as it is publicly. Smart people over there, they do they do have private polling. My story has a quote from a person familiar with McConnell World's thinking saying they believe he, Blake, quote, doesn't have a shot currently at beating Mark Kelly in Arizona. So we'll see who's right, you know, but yes, every poll that shows Blake within striking distance strengthens the argument that with just a couple more millions of dollars, this is a winnable race. The challenge here, Peter, though, is is assessing which races are most competitive. Their goal is to get to 51. If getting to 53 doesn't make a huge difference to them versus 51 in terms of the Republicans having the majority. And so if they're trying to assess is Blake Masters our 53rd vote or our 51st vote? Because if they think Mehmet Oz is a better chance of beating John Fetterman in Pennsylvania or Herschel Walker over Raphael Warnock, then the logic is spend for them. But yes, every poll that shows that Blake is closing the gap, and there have been some polls that show him, yeah, three or four points down, especially since we, you and I last talked two weeks ago, that makes the logic of somebody somewhere spending some money much more convincing. But yet you're still in the same situation where, you know, yeah, someone really should take care of that problem. Meanwhile, like he's being outspent six or eight to one. I was just reading like a, a piece in the um, Arizona Republic that cited you. Like you've been really <laughs> driving the conversation around this race in a lot of ways. Um, so it's always fun to get linked by the local paper. What is like the McConnell world take on why Blake Masters is doing poorly? Is it because like, he is like young, telegenic. I mean, yeah, he's a full blown like MAGA guy, or at least, or at least playing one on TV for sure. Or at least playing one on TV, but he's not just like a total nincompoop. Um, like, why why do they think he's at such a deficit against Kelly? The Republican candidate that Mitch McConnell wanted in Arizona was Doug Ducey, the governor who declined to run for the seat, um, and, and Blake. You know, this is arguable, but he's certainly to the right of Doug Ducey. And it's arguable, but you could you could say, you know, would Ducey be in the same position? Like, maybe he would, to be clear. But there's the candidate quality issue, I guess, with, with Masters, from at least the McConnell's point of view. But I think the, the real reason that we're in this predicament, if you're we, I mean, the Republican Party, is because of Mark Kelly. Unlike, say, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, Kelly has like this brand, you know, as this former astronaut, obviously the husband of, of Gabby Gifford, who has sort of become political royalty or certainly obviously her story is incredible. Kelly has characterized himself as this kind of moderate meat and potatoes kind of white guy. That's a lot of the story here. Biden's not popular in Arizona, but the question is, can these people outrun Biden's approval rating in the state, and, and Kelly is. So so a lot of this is about Mark Kelly, not Blake Masters. In your piece, there was one thing you said that actually kind of pissed me off, which is like... Go on. And you're paraphrasing here, but like you have ears and lots of fundraisers. Um, and so you have a quote in here from Peter Thiel calling Mark Kelly, who was a retired Navy captain and former astronaut, quote, basically a fancy version of a monkey, according to <laughs> yes. one source who was in the room at this Pro Masters fundraiser in Miami. Yeah. I mean, like, that's such bullshit. Like, 
if you are any kind of patriot in this country, like, I'm sorry, like astronauts aren't only badasses. Mark Kelly has advanced degrees. He flew combat missions in Desert Storm. Like, fuck off, dude. Like, you're just a private equity guy. This is the part where we're going to insert God Bless America in, in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I mean, I mean, Peter Peter is like a, um, I mean, this is an obvious thing to say. He's a provocative speaker. Yeah, I know. Like, honestly, he, he is extraordinarily quotable. I, I don't know, right, right before this event, Peter gave a speech at the National Conservatism Conference, which is sort of this new right idea summit. And like, the number of things that Peter said that were just, you would have that reaction to, uh, Peter Hamby, like, like gotcha. there, there, you, you'd, you'd be yelling <laughs> at the tube all day. Like Teal just like says, he's a good writer uh, and, and, and says things in, in evocative ways. But yeah, sure. Certainly, yeah. certainly that comment. That's part of Mark Kelly's successful political brand. Yeah. It's like Americans like astronauts think they're cool, think they're badasses. It's just like a weird thing to say. So what was interesting, Peter, about that event that, that Teal did for Blake in, in Miami is a, a donor asked him about basically this fight between McConnell and Peter, a donor asked him, like, why is the Republican establishment like letting you twist in the wind? And Blake's giving, you know, this kind of diplomatic spiel. And he says, like, basically that I'm going to be so competitive in October that McConnell is going to stick with me. And basically that I'm going to make them spend money for me. And, and whether or not that's just like, you know, faux confidence or just being uh, cocksure what was so ironic about this whole thing is Peter Thiel was like literally right there. They're having this conversation about who's going to spend money for me. And like, it's like you wouldn't know from Blake's comment that like the guy that had introduced him is sitting, you know, 10 yards away from you and just spent $15 million during the primary. It's like there's this question and this answer. We're in this like Peterless world where Peter Thiel does not exist. The, the solution to your problem is right there. Yeah, what? And and yet there's only so much that Blake can do about it. That's clarifying. I mean, like, look, I'm sure candidates and, and outside funders break these rules all the time in secret, but like- Peter's kind of, Thiel, Thiel's kind of paranoid about this stuff. I'll, I'll say that. Like, I know, I know, I know, I know Peter has uh, been, I, I've been, he's been described to me as like almost overly cautious and, you know, so Blake can't just turn to him in the fundraiser and be like, yo, wink, wink, wink. Can you give me some money? Like you can't, that's illegal. You can't do that. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, what, one final thing that I thought was kind of funny. I reached out to Ann Coulter for the story. Uh, always, always a uh -huh. fun experience. Uh, uh, Ann Coulter is, is not, you know, just a, a shock jock here. Like she's actually someone who talks with Peter Thiel. She is close with him. And I just, uh, I posited her this question, like, what should she do about it? And Coulter, who, I don't know if you followed her. Her tweets it all recently, um, but she has become like an anti-Trump, uh, you know, Rick Wilson-esque uh, provocateur. Uh, and she basically wants Donald Trump to spend money for Blake Masters. I mean, she kind of has a point, right? No, no, this is the thing. It's like, why isn't Trump spending more money helping House and Senate candidates? Like, he just shows up doing these rallies, but he's like hoarding money. Like, again, Trump does his own thing. But typically, if you want to like curry favor with the party and people to support you when you're out for president, you send them a bunch of money and like help them finish off their campaigns. And he just is not doing that. He's sitting on it. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, Coulter, she has, she has a point. She has a point here. All right. Uh, we will have you back next week uh, and the week after and the week after and the week after that for round three, four, five, and six of McCollum's oh, Steel. Yes. <laughs> Full employment in these tough economic times. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much. You bet. When we come back, John Kelly is here with Alex Bigler for a first birthday edition of Feedback Friday.
everyone. This is Alex Bigler. For our loyal listeners, it is your lucky week because not only do you get to hear me on the pod twice this week, but you also get John Kelly twice because John is bookmarking Media Monday with what I'm calling today Reflection Friday, a look back on one year of Puck. That's right. We are celebrating Puck's one year birthday anniversary. John, what, what would you call it? Uh, either is fine. You don't have a preference for birthday or anniversary? I think anniversary is slightly more luxurious. I think birthday is slightly puerile. But, uh, you know, we're um, we're in an office taping this now with like 75 red balloons, uh, helium eyes at the ceiling, and um, and gray balloons spelling out puck. So uh, I think both both words are appropriate. Okay, well, if you prefer anniversary, then I'll... I'll return the pinata that I got you (laughs) and get some stationery instead. Um, So last time you and I were on the podcast together, I surprised you and read you some fan mail. And I'm fortunate enough on this one year anniversary to be able to surprise you with some more fan mail that I'd like to share. We got an email just this morning from someone at Netflix who wrote in to Fritz and said, congratulations on one year. Thank you for being such a welcome improvement and addition to my news life. It is hard to remember how I survived without this exceptional compendium of reporting. I cannot wait to see what the future has in store for Puck. Thank you for being such an invaluable source. Whoa, what an unbelievable note. Thank you for sharing that. And I did not write that. That actually no, came from No, I believe that. Somebody. I don't think you would... Uh... Could have gone that far, <laughs> but I think it's great. You know, we've we've spent uh, the last couple of days really thinking about what a year of puck means to us, and it's great to to hear from some of our readers what it what it has meant to them. So, what about the past year has been easier than you expected, and what do you think has been harder than you expected? Oh boy, um, you, you know, I think that we try here. At least I, I feel like I personally try to be both. Uh, unsentimental and also reflective at the same time because a year is an incredible threshold to cross and a real benchmark, but also um, we want to be at this for a very long time. And I think we we all feel like we're, we're doing important work, not just making a, a product that we love, but hopefully changing the, the business model of how journalism really works. What was easier? To be honest, a few things. Um, th- this is by far the most talented group of people I've ever worked with from a board level, executive level, and obviously talent level. I, I'd never worked with people like Matt Bellany or Dylan Byers before or Julia Yaffe. These, these are new colleagues to me and watching uh, their profile soar and, you know, seeing how meaningfully their work is connected. I mean, this, this um, person you just quoted, I presume, lives and dies by Matt as, as does the, really the entirety of the entertainment industry. So not, not surprisingly, and, and Jim Van Hai actually uh, said a version of this to Dylan, when you work with incredibly talented people, the hard work takes care of itself and, and, and puck success is their success, like f- full stop. I don't, I don't think it's that complicated. And that's made all of our problems, small problems. What has been harder? In my seat, at least, you're sort of oscillating between two planes of sight. One is the immediate short term, like right now we're having this conversation on a Thursday afternoon, figuring out, you know, we have to publish uh, Tara's uh, excellent interview with Jeff Rowe and, um, and Matt's got a great story about... Um, uh, some backstage intrigue at Apple. And, you know, so that's very uh, front of mind. And then 
much longer term thinking, and I don't mean a, a month now. I mean, you know, two or three years from now, what, what, where do we want Puck to be in the culture and as a business? And um, there are a lot of exogenous forces that uh, that take place there, both in, in the marketplace and um, and in, you know, in terms of, of what we want to be as well. So I think balancing that, it is the job. It's, it's, it's the name of the game. You have to push yourself to see things you don't normally see. We have a lot of opportunity here. And um we, we want to be very uh, broad and bold in our thinking. And, and that's the, the most exciting challenge that we can have. Well, that's great. The, these Friday segments are really meant to hold hold the mirror up to everybody individually <laughs> and make them think long and hard about themselves. I think going back to the thing you said about what was easier than expected and thinking about the, the journalistic talent on our team, I, I've been so pleasantly surprised of how much they care about the things beyond their immediate work, like what they care about with the business itself. I just feel like I've worked with so many people who have said things literally like, I'm the creative, I don't need to think about that. And I mean, it's almost respectfully to all of our journalists listening, borderline annoying how much they want to know about what's going on with numbers, what's going on with strategy and plans. And half the time they're asking me questions that I haven't actually figured out yet. It's exhilarating to know that they're so much in the trench also. I was thinking of a line that Julia says a lot, which is, Puck is all of our baby. And I think that when we all started this, we kind of collectively hypothesized two things. The first was that journalists are actually excellent business people with great business instincts. They're on the forefront of the culture in a way that executives back at, you know, HQ just don't see. The other thing too, and, and I'm saying this in full candor, not, not, not to butter you up, but we also realize that executives can be some of the most creative people. I learned this at TPG where um, I was sort of overwhelmed by how much uh, creative deal-making and, and, and creativity went into um, how they thought about business. And, and I'm sitting across the table in a very small podcast studio that looks kind of like the diner booth where Tony <laughs> Soprano was murdered with uh, the exemplar of this. We joke about how Alex is kind of, you've oscillated and worn various hats here, but you are now a, a genuine content creator as uh, as uh, the nomenclature goes. And also like, you know, a fantastic brand marketing executive and, and you can do both things. And actually, I think one probably makes you better at the other. And, and there's a reason to do both. And as we get bigger, you know, I think we started this out of necessity in some ways. Um, but as we get bigger, we have to make sure that we hold on to these things because it is what makes us different than uh, other companies. Well, that is very kind of you to say, and I will replay that section back to you when I ask for my own spinoff comedy hour. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> at the bar. I love it. So are there any pieces from the last year or pieces or moments that really kind of stick out to you that you point to when you think about the work we've done? Yes, too many to share, but I will, um, let me Rorschach myself uh, a little bit. It was May 15th, 2021, the day we announced that Matt was joining. I was in my backyard at the time, trying to build a basketball hoop for my son. <laughs> it was a Sunday night and, and the light was going down. Um, and I had like all the, the, my toolbox out and um, uh, I was getting really frustrated. And then Matt's first email went out um, to 400 people. You know, now it's obviously in the tens and tens of thousands. And then the trade stories came out. And it was such big news that I think Deadline actually broke the embargo to scoop THR. It was just like a totally life-changing moment. It's arrived. It was it was one of the first real public disclosures that we had. And obviously, Matt's gone on to do like incredible you know, industry-defining work. Uh, that was one. Bill Cohan's piece about Carlos Watson was, was another one that I think like uh, exemplified a, a kind of uh, 
Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside journalism that we could do, the sort of upscale, sophisticated, no bullshit, fourth wall breaking journalism that Puck wants to do. With also a big respect for just the way we write. Like, I remember the kicker went nuts mm-hmm. all over. Like, every reporter I follow on any social no handle mayo. was quoting no mayo. It was amazing. Other moments um, when Dylan reported with incredible sourcing that uh, Disney was going to, um, had contemplated what to do with ESPN and, and that a, a spin was at least on the table, seeing the stock jump. We were one month into market last year and they said something called Puck and um, the, the on-air uh, anchor uh, corrected whether it was you know, Faber or Kramer or whoever said, oh no, Puck's a real thing. And, uh, and the guy who reported the story actually used to work at this network was fantastic. I think obviously watching like the, the Julia surge um, that as uh, after Putin invaded Ukraine, she was the English speaking world's expert on this topic and, and just watching how the culture began to totally consider and appreciate everything she was publishing um, was overwhelming. And I mean, there are so many more. Um, <laughs> Tara told me a funny anecdote from a, from a couple months ago about um, being in the green room with someone very close to the Bidens who just said, oh, we got to talk. Um, <laughs> and, and there are so many moments, uh, the Eric's piece about uh, whether Eminem would take a knee at the Super Bowl, which the NFL uh, sort of got caught in a pickle there. And, um, you know, I think we, we actually forced the culture to do something. Um, uh, you know, we, I think we allowed Eminem to be able to take the knee, which he very much wanted to over the, uh, one of the time was the objection of the NFL. As you can see, it's endless, but there are so many of these moments where you just see what true like currency, you know, Puck has in the culture. And, and we you know we are just getting started. This is, this is a, the beginning of a very, very long journey for us. And to really supplement that, I would gladly point out that the number of hockey references about Puck has, has really gone down, um, which I think that's is refreshing. I think that that's a, a real signal in the market of, of what we're doing and, and how people are reacting to it. Wait, but well, let me hijack this for a second. I'm Uh-oh. curious. I, I want to know your moments. I also want you to tell listeners why you came to work here, because I remember two funny things about Alex's hiring. One, we met with her very early in our lifetime. And then you would not sign your contract until Mercury was in retrograde. Oh my God. Um, which I will never forget. And I think is, I guess, chic. You told a funny story this morning about being recruited both to Puck and to another concurrent media startup. And, and you chose us. Uh, and a, a, the recruiter from the other place said, good luck with that That hockey fanzine um, to, to tell listener your story. Um, so first of all, thank you for making me sound like someone who just lives at a Maggie Rogers concert. Um that for anyone who wants to know the real Mercury and retrograde story, you can you can reach me at Alexandra at Puck.news. I came to Puck because the thing that I love the most is building a community. I love it, whether it's the community of a small team that I'm working on or the community of a larger consumer base. I got very tired of places I was working or places I was looking at working their goals being like, how many eyeballs can we get on something without caring who those eyeballs were? Why were those eyeballs reading something? And what else were you offering that group? And for me, the thing that you wanted to do at Puck is not clickbaity headlines, not writing what everyone else is writing, but think deeply about the group who is joining and coming to Puck and and what are they looking for and what can we give them? I think we're doing it really well. 
I think you give me a lot of runway to do that in a lot of different ways too. And, and I think the community we've built here is pretty special. And I am saying that knowing that most people who the number one complaint we get about this podcast is that whenever I'm on, I sound too happy about working here. Um, so I say that freely. I'm not being, you know, there's no gun to my head when I'm saying this. But the last funny thing I'll tell you while, while we're here is I was joking with Dylan about like when I spin off my own thing and he started, he started coming up with, um, with headlines for it, which were just so funny. They oh, were like, it. Bigler ambitions, Puck's secret weapon strikes out on her own. <laughs> Inside the media startup mutiny, no one saw coming. <laughs> like, it almost made me want to do it just so Dylan could write this story. So next year, that is what we can um, talk about on the Powers That Be podcast is uh, the, the Biglers <laughs> on the lamb. Well, thank you so much for joining me. The last thing that we'll say before signing off for the weekend is... We never offer discounts at Puck. You know, we believe that good journalism is worth paying for to the point where everyone on the business side, all of our journalists, we all pay yeah. for our own Puck subscription. No discounts. Except. Except for right now. For right now, um, where we are having an anniversary sale. And you can subscribe for 21% off the cost of an annual subscription. Just use the code 2022BDAY. Mm-hmm. Not anniversary, B day. <laughs> that is two zero two two B D A Y. And of course, the uh, the twenty one percent hails from the uh, the year that puck was established. Hello, thanks so much. Have a great softball game this weekend, and we'll talk <laughs> to you soon. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 